Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Paleo Valley Beef Sticks. Beef Sticks! Paleo Valley beef sticks are the only beef sticks in the USA. Did you know this, Kelly? Made from 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beefs and organic spices that is also naturally fermented. Did you know this? So check this out. This One of the reasons I love this thing, I love these beef sticks, is that we have been, I don't know, brainwashed as as children to love things like Slim Jims. Right, like it, it's so good. I grew up eating like charcuterie kind of things, Wurstsalat in Germany, Jäger, right? Remember those little meat yeah, those sticks? little mini sausages. Yeah. But the thing is, all of those things are just crap. They are just full of crap. I mean, they they like corn-based citric acid, which we've talked about before, encapsulated hydrogenated oils. It's just gnarly. And what's so great about this is that this is all-world meat making at its best, and it's like a superfood. I mean, honestly, this is one of the things that will make your coat shiny, make your skin better, and uh, it's an easy way to just get in some of those protein macros, which I actually struggle with every day, except for today. You know, and one of the things I love about these beef sticks as a busy working mom is that at any time, no matter what bag or purse I'm carrying, you can always find a beef stick or two because it's the perfect snack to have in case of emergency, and in my in my case, instead of eating an entire bag of popcorn. <laughs> you know... Uh, small small point of order here because I we're such fans of the beef sticks. Our podcast director Lisa has nicknamed her legs the beef sticks. If you want to get some beef sticks and learn more about this awesome product, go to the readystate.com/beefsticks and use the code readystate for fifteen percent off. Beef sticks. Hey everyone, this episode of the Ready State is brought to you by our friends at Kabuki Strength. If you've been around the Ready State for a minute, you know that one of the Tenets of our business is doing dope stuff with dope people. And it's such a no-brainer to point you to our friends at Kabuki. So a couple things around Kabuki Strength. They design, engineer, manufacture incredible strength equipment that solves problems. I have a wonky wrist. You may know this. But the Cadillac bar allows me to press, do all the things that I want to do. It's bananas how good that bar is. And it's so good I actually have one at the gym and I need one for home. And Juliet was like, you don't need one at home. I'm like, I do, it's how I express myself through my movement. So it turns out they also do incredible research-based education, world-class coaching, and they actually spend a lot of time in their communities. And some of that comes about because of who the founder is. Chris Duffin, Mad Scientist Duffin, is, I don't know, a friend of mine, a savant engineer, tech nerd, and turns out really strong person. And what's really nice, about Kabuki is that they build equipment for athletes by athletes. Um, we love the pain pill. We love the boomstick. I have both of those in my mid-century modern living room because they are beautiful, gorgeous accoutrements. And sometimes you just need to lay there and let a heavy, beautiful, bespoke item smash the crap out of your quads. But also, I spend a lot of time um, lifting on the trap bar. The Duffins Trap Deadlift Bar is open-ended, allows me to get into split positions. And one of the things that happened before I had knee surgery was that I was looking for ways where I could get a little bit more quad engagement in my pulling because squatting was out. And I ended up doing a lot of work with the this incredible bar they developed because it made my body feel good, kept my legs and knees working in ways that I couldn't as I worked around the problem. So to date, I am a Kabuki fan. Do check them out. If you are a strength nerd, want to see what's going on, how they talk about the world, thereadystate.com slash Kabuki. That's K-A-B-U-K-I. ReadyState.com slash Kabuki. We thank them for their support of this podcast. Anya Fernal is the co-founder and board chair of Belcampo, a farm-to-table supply chain complete with regenerative farm, full-service butcher shops, and restaurants. She is an entrepreneur, chef, and agriculture expert. And when we say entrepreneur, there isn't enough time in the day to go over all of the incredible things Anya has founded and done in her career prior to Belcampo. From founding a cheese co-op in Italy that led to microfinancing and investing in small family businesses, to founding Live Culture, Eat Real, Slow Food, and being asked by Alice Waters to serve as the executive director of Slow Food Nation in the Bay Area. 
She also managed to write a cookbook called Home Cook and served as a judge and sustainable foods, food expert on Iron Chef from 2009 to 2015. She was named Food and Wine 40 Under 40 and one of the top 100 female founders in Inc. Magazine. She also runs something called Meat Camp, which may be the single greatest thing I've ever heard of and I plan to attend. Kelly and I first met Anya through our friend, mutual friend, Andrew Huberman, who's also been on the Ready State podcast, and I immediately related to her as a fellow female co-founder and CEO. Anya Fernald, welcome to the Ready State podcast. Thank you for having me, guys. We are so stoked to have you here. And in full disclosure, we know each other and are friends. So I think that will make this conversation even more fun and exciting. But thank you again so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to be connected with you guys IRL and on the pod. I really think um, we are two of the most fortunate people. We have been fed by your own hands around fire with animals that you have shepherded the whole experience. Belcampo has changed our lives. It really has changed our lives. And um, there's so much to get into here and talk about, but I think we should start with the big thing in the room right now, which is there's a lot going on in our supply chain. And it's a really interesting time. You guys didn't think I was going there? And uh, there's a, it's really interesting time. You have this experience and depth and history of food from, you know, from cultures, when I mean cultures, like milk cultures, all the way up to, you know, how do we feed people at a larger scale? What do you think is happening in our current world right now post-COVID? Like, that's interesting or we should be aware of. We're talking about the supply chain or what's happening in the world post-COVID. Like what even was that question? COVID has exposed the fragility and brittleness of the modern supply chain. All of our efficiency comes at a really high cost. And that cost is around the ability to be flexible, the ability to pivot quickly and kind of manage for variable outcomes. You know, it's like in anything, if you could in your life plan for the next five years, exactly what you were going to eat every day, and it was all shelf stable, you'd probably spend one tenth of what you spend on food today, right? The ability to plan long-term outcomes and real consistent performances are things that actually brings you a lot of efficiency and cost savings. The same thing is true about our supply chain and our food system. We've built for great efficiency, for great manageability, long-term forecasting, and the trade-off and the cost to us is in our ability to actually be nimble and respond. So when the supply chain kind of breaks, I don't think of it as breaking. I think it's just, that's the way our supply chain is. It's very efficient and very good at doing certain things, but it isn't, it's very fragile too. We've described this as a a normal accident theory. It's just a normal expression of the system. It looks like an aberrant phenomenon just ends up being part of the system if you give the system enough time to kind of explore, explain itself or express itself because the system is so complex. Currently, I just saw a post that you did talking about sort of this kind of thing happening with chickens. Would you elaborate a little bit more? I think that gives a good example of what people are hearing or feeling in the news. Yeah. So there's a chicken shortage in the US and a couple major factors drove that. One is that there were storms in Texas, those big snowstorms that happened a while back and the kind of knock-on effect we're feeling right now where chickens were euthanized in mass because those factory farms are very reliant on electricity and power. And if there's any risk of power going out, they actually proactively euthanize because otherwise these are the kind of farms where it's not like our farm where if the power shut off for two weeks, like it'd kind of be a bummer, but everybody would be fine. All the animals would be fine because everything's outdoors really. So you really just more have issues with like electric fencing and some of the you know pumps for irrigation and stuff like that. But in these large mechanical or commodity farms or centralized farms, like they'll actually, all the animals are indoors. And if you have in- animals indoors, you have, I mean, think about it. If you had hundreds of people in a large enclosed barn and everybody is defecating and urinating and in one space, what the air is like. So how they manage that is massive ventilation systems. And actually they've shown the Pew Charitable Trust did a study about impacts of confinement animal on human workers. And they show this in the light of human suffering for the people who work in these farms. But they, if the if ventilation systems go down for lack of power, in nine minutes, all the people working in that hoop house will be dead because of the toxicity of the air. So for them, the possibility of power going out and ventilation systems going down is enormously impactful. 
So what they'll do is kill all the animals and shut down until the risk of power outages is out. So that is one impact, right? And that's not an example of like supply chain fragility. That's like a fragile system, right? Where it only works, it works at optimum efficiency when everything is going right, you know? And then the other kind of major disruptions in supply chain have been around um, the actual use of animals in the globalized supply chain. So in the U.S., we've actually increased proportionally the amount of breasts that we're consuming. And that has driven some changes in global allocation of birds and of parts. And that's also created some shortages. So it's sort of like anytime things shift against the pattern, you actually have a major issue in supply chain. So things don't go exactly as planned. Like there's a storm, there's a change in people preferring breasts a bit more. There's also some issues with some slaughterhouses being shut down occasionally, needing to pivot and things like that. So it's like not like all these things, each one of them is, they're sort of like bad news. There's some challenges to each of them, but none of them seems like something that in a normal system you couldn't react to. But in today's system, uh, you actually can't react quickly. So we just run out. That is the perfect pivot to sort of telling how you got here and the story of Belcampo and the, the relationships that really the reason we're friends in the first place. Well, I mean, I really want to go way back because I have some sense of, of what it was like from knowing you, but I would just love to get a little story of what your childhood was like, because you've become a crazy and amazing serial entrepreneur that is so successful that we could get into all that. But, you know, where did it all start? So I grew up a pretty itinerant. I think one like in retrospect, one of the great challenges of my life as a young person was just moving a lot. Um, my parents were both academics. I lived in 18 houses before I was 15. So I remember counting that at some point and being like, oh, so I think there, I've gotten a real ability to kind of land on my feet and be in situations with new people and at least to put on a veneer of overconfidence in most situations. And then the other piece is I did have a chance to live abroad. Like I was born in Germany. My parents are American, but they lived in Germany for a decade. I lived in London for a couple of years growing up. I got a lot of experience just like being in different cultures and being comfortable out of my comfort zone. So I moved to Europe at 21 and ended up staying there into my, basically my early thirties, but I moved there right after college and ended up working in Italy. Uh, so that kind of, that ability to kind of bounce out, go try something, really put myself out of my comfort zone definitely came from a lot of exposure you know, I also, I didn't come from a entrepreneurial family at all. My parents are both professors, but I came from a family where hard work was valued. We never, ever took a vacation apart from going camping like every couple of years. A vacation for my family was I would get to go with my parents to a conference where there was a hotel with a pool. So like we didn't ever do anything to relax and relaxing and balance wasn't part of our lives, which is something I've kind of tried to correct for in my own life. But I definitely got a culture of hard work from my parents and a culture of kind of risk-taking in terms of like putting yourself out there and do, following your passion. But I remember feeling as a child, you know, I started my first business when I was 12. I was always very entrepreneurial and just loved building, like loved making, very hands-on, very tactile, like to touch everything and love to cook and sew and crochet and build fires and dig pits and garden, all these things as a kid. And I remember feeling kind of like a loser because I wasn't like as strong academically as the rest of my family. That's definitely how we describe you now of all our friends, like definitely the most. Not loser. very strong academically. Not very strong. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's funny because in the real world, I'm like, yeah, I'm an okay student. But in my family, like both my parents are valedictorians. My sister is a professor at Cal. Both my parents are professors at Stanford. It's like everybody around me is always really brainy. And I, I feel brainy, but not in the same way. You know, it's like you lose the context. Then, of course, I realized once I got out into real life that my skills were actually more normal. Like I was my kind of interest in like making money and doing things and building was like more normal in the rest of the universe than being like insanely into getting degrees. So that was funny for me to be like, oh, actually, I'm more kind of in the mainstream than I thought in this. And I sort of felt like I was an outlier and my life was going to be challenging because I really love business. But it wasn't the case. So against that backdrop of, you know, academic college professor parents moving all over the place, it's not totally surprising that you decide to move to Italy after college, but am I understanding correctly that you started a cheese-making cooperative? Well, I made one for, actually, this is kind of a funny story. I was studying cheese-making, actually, sort of as a baker and a cook, and then I became a cheese-maker, moved to Europe, first in the UK, then I got a job in Italy 
and um, I actually was developing a, a cooperative, like doing the business plan for cooperative cheesemakers that was funded by the European Union. They're trying to put money into rural, impoverished areas to help them get businesses that actually help monetize these really awesome local traditional products. So we had all these cheesemakers and they, these guys, it's like this cheese, they literally made it like from this cow that only produces two liters of milk a day. Keep in mind, that's like one fortieth of what a conventional cow produces, like tiny amounts of milk, less milk than a sheep. And they could eat thorns and rocks. I mean, these cows are really tough. They don't need water. They're these tough little Sicilian cows. So they'd milk these tough little cows. They would make like one bucket of milk a day. They'd make one cheese a day. It was the most inefficient cheese, but it was amazing because it would, it would get to be 110 degrees and this cheese would not suffer, right? It could be in extremely hot temperatures. It was very adapted to this climate in this region. So it was like for kind of like for me, I was so excited about how I figure out how to tell a story and build this and then work with all these cheesemakers. And it was a very, very challenging project because I was in really rural Sicily. And it was also very corrupt. My boss at the time did end up in federal prison for cooperation. <laughs> Um, so I remember at the time thinking like, hey, I think cheese mafia is actually one of my favorite punk so bands. It's like, I, my dad came and visited me because this cheese place I worked had like a dairy research thing. And he's like, Anya, that's like a million dollar microscope that they have in there. I was like, really? That's crazy. I wonder how they have so much money. <laughs> I was very naive, but that whole area where I lived in Sicily, I actually remember noticing that like my, I had next to my home, I had a grotto. And I also had a small orchard. I lived in this little monastery, literally like an old monastery, because it was really cheap back then to get the houses that didn't have car access. You could walk to this house. It was beautiful. But all the modern people like wanted the really nice new house. And I was like, I'll take the cool old house. It comes with a grotto. And I walked into my grotto one day and there was my landlord playing cards with his friends and none of them had pinkies. Ooh. And I was like, huh. And then that was the same landlord that when I ended up leaving Sicily, he said to me, he's like, Anya, Anya, I don't want you to, I was moving to work in Northern Italy, which is a little more tame. And um, he was like, I don't want you to, to move away. I want you to move and live in New York and work for me selling couches. But here's the deal. You don't have to sell any couches. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, sidehead, what is the subtext here? <laughs> this and, is, this are you like so... 22 just to, at this time? Or are you like yeah, 22 I was, years I, old? I was such a child. I was, I was a child of the West Coast. I, I never watched movies. And I was like embracing Sicilian life. I played, I was actually, I play oboe and I joined a professional band. I was like a paid musician in the local um, band. Like they have like, they're really into processions in Sicily. So I was like, what a better way to meet people in my new town. And so I like joined the local band. And yeah, I've been doing funeral dirges. This is going to be great. Funeral marches with my oboe in the streets. And <laughs> I would, and there's just like some things that I look back on it. For example, my boss at the time would rent his entire staff out to go to political rallies. So there'd be like two days of the week during politics where it's like, everybody's got to get on a bus and go to this rally. <laughs> so we all have to sit in the front row and like applaud. It was crazy. I mean, I have so many more insights now on that. But aside from the, like the guy was corrupt. Um, there was a couple mistresses on his staff and it was a, definitely a time where I learned a lot about life and being a very naturally direct person who isn't always uh, so subtle it was a really good, it was kind of like the correction that I needed about kind of like learning about the most indirect, most subtle, complex kind of nuanced place where you never do anything with a straight line to straight, you know, A to B was a great life lesson for me. And, you know, nothing, it was from where I was, I was such in the periphery of power that nothing even close to dangerous happened. But it did give me a sense of like, okay, you know, this is sort of how part of the world works. But I also got to, you know, spend my like, lunch breaks and weekends, gathering food, cooking over the open fire. I'm learning how to butcher and take apart animals, milking, making cheese. I mean, you had a grotto. I had Hello. a grotto. I mean, I learned how to make limoncello, how to can tomatoes, how to, I mean, make all the making and the drying and the processing and preserving. And just like the beauty of like a natural, I'd never lived. This is like where the health stuff comes in. Like this is TMI, but like, I remember distinctly that my pee started to smell really different. And it was like this really radical change where I, and my body started to smell different and it was like better, you know, like I, and little things that had always bothered me, like getting UTIs and getting, you know, like having bad breath and some like body odor, like stuff like this, like 
just changed. Um, my split ends went away. So living in this really traditional place, eating tons of really good sheep cheese, like drinking olive oil by the cupful, doing everything that I was not supposed to do, being like a, you know, I graduated from college in 1998. So it was like low fat mania. So doing all the things differently, my health skyrocketed, my mood improved. I mean, I was only eating seasonally and I was eating basically half my calories from animal fat. This is so amazing as a crash course and sort of laying a foundation for what you do and what you've accomplished now. But just going back, because we actually grew up within 45 minutes of each other. in yes, Southern in Bavaria. Bavaria. Right. And how much of your, my exposure to food as a kid really changed how I thought about food. How much of your exposure being in a young, like Bavarian Hamlet influence was that first kind of stepping stone building block? Was that, do you ever make that connection or is that something there? Well, I really wonder about that because I, you know, I was raised actually in a raw milk dairy. Like until I was three, I lived above a dairy barn. Like we didn't have heating. We had cows. cows. Yeah. yeah. So I do think that has, I mean, I think more than anything, you know, we moved from there to Eugene, Oregon and had a garden, but it was more that my parents had a little bit more openness to cooking and understanding around farming and seasonality. But yeah, absolutely. I don't think that I would be on the path that I am on now if I hadn't had this sort of early, early taste of things. Also just going there occasionally, my parents would go back for work and we went, you know, and just tasting and eating and trying things. I mean, it, it, it totally opens your mind to just have the exposure at a young age to different ways of being around food. Do you think that early, you know, you're like these formative years in your 20s, you're living in Italy and having this amazing experience around food and sort of bearing witness to like the Italian slash European food system. Do you think that was sort of your first time that you were able to make this comparison between, okay, something's going on here that's not going on in the American food system? Or was that, did that happen later, earlier? Well, I remember really specific insight around this, which was, you know, here, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to have a like a vegetable garden. And I, you know, just now the house I live in now, you know, that I moved into four years ago, I've been able to have a vegetable garden and it's taken a lot of hard work in my life to get to a place where I can afford a vegetable garden. <laughs> right. And in Italy, it was the exact opposite where the poorer you were, the more likely you were to have a vegetable garden. And, you know, I remember it distinctly too. my, my ex-husband's Italian and he moved back with me to the U S and as soon as we moved back, I'm like, I got to start making salami because I got to like, I need good salami and we need good salami. And he was like, you understand my family worked for generations to not have to make salami. Like, why do you want to make salami? You know, it was like these, so it's like for him as a like middle-class Italian, it was sort of low status to make these things. Um, and that's a increasing, that was a shift that I was seeing in Italy when I was there where the, the privilege of wealth here in the U.S. is the ability to grow your own food and have access to clean food. And that's actually the weight of poverty it was at the time where I lived in Sicily. You know, there, the middle class in Sicily was for a big, like, date night or, like, but something where you're showing off to your friends was going to McDonald's, right? So that seeing that, that sort of shift and the difference in health. And then when I was there, too, of course, now it's changed. There's definitely way more obesity than when I, the early days of when I lived in Italy, but it was amazing too. Like everybody was super lean, just, you know, running around being Italian, eating all the pasta and fat that they apparently wanted. So that was another kind of interesting thing, just seeing the amount, like to me, it's just what's happened is the rise of processed food and packaged food in Italy has happened in the past 20 years since I first moved there. But yeah, I definitely made the connection that the poor you were there it seemed like there was more access to simple, basic food and healthy food. The things that we now in, I think, in the educated, you know, classes in the U.S. and people with access to resources and time are pursuing was just like the rights, the basic rights there. Whereas it seemed like in the U.S., the hurdle, if you're, you know, poor socioeconomic status, a lot of access issues is the characterizing, you know, what characterizes it, right? We don't have access to basic rights of basic clean food if you live below a certain socioeconomic strata in the U.S. That seemed at the time that I was in Italy to be the exact opposite. Does that make sense? It's like if you were in the bottom third of society, you were probably growing your own food because it was cheaper and because you lived in a rural area. In the U.S., it's like if you're in the bottom third of income, that's the least likely to be able to have any access or be able to even figure out a way to get land or know-how to time. Right. Yeah, that's, that was a major paradigm shift. That's so interesting. I heard that, I read that when you came home from Italy, 
You started a meat CSA out of your van. What is a CSA, Joe? And community-supported agriculture, but it can be done with meat. I don't know. Agriculture always, in my mind, I think vegetables, but I think it also includes meat. I don't know if I read that correctly, but if I did, I just wanted to learn more about that. And then also subtext, what did your family say about that, if that is what you did? Yeah, I mean, my family has, like, I remember my, my sister coming to visit me in Italy, and I was, like, eating raw sausage, and I would serve a big plate of raw meat at the start of every every meal. And she's like, oh, my God. Um, like, it was just like, what has gone? What is, like, what the hell? Because when, you know, I've been vegetarian for years, and she actually still is vegetarian. But it was an amazing shift, and my health was radically improving. I felt amazing. And I came back to the U.S., and I'm like, I need to, you know, continue. Not like I'm eating meat four times a day, but I ate meat every day, which was different from when I before I lived there. And I immediately gained weight and I immediately struggled with like lethargy and, and mood, which I had before moving abroad. So I tackled it first with meat and I set up, a, I was at the time I'd started a small produce distribution company. And so I had a refrigerated van and I bought a whole cow from a farmer adjacent to a peach farm that I worked with in Cape Bay Valley, bought a cow from him, mostly for myself, but just, but sold some to my friends as well. That was so popular that I basically started buying cows on the regular and helped set up a meat distribution co-op. But it was so illegal and so high risk that it was just, it was sort of like fun for a minute. But I realized, you know, the way that it's set up with, you know, USDA regulation things, it was, it, I was taking a lot of personal risk associated with it. But if anything, it just gave me an opportunity to understand the complexity of balancing a whole carcass. So cutting up a whole beef and figuring out how to use it. Um, and I also started buying my own whole pigs and butchering them and making my own charcuterie and preserving meats as well. And I'd say it just kind of blossomed into like a culinary, you know, growing culinary interest in, in working with whole animals, you know, having developed the taste for meat, living abroad, and then coming back and having to kind of figure it out. I started buying these whole animals, messing around with them more, and also realized along the way, like, man, this is a really messed up industry and it's super hard to navigate. I love it. It's Anne Lamont, I think, who wrote Bird by Bird, right? Is that for how to write? And then you basically, the story of Belcampo and all the things you is like cow by cow. Cow by cow. <laughs> so <laughs> that's an, that is a bananas story. Just like white van opens the door. White van. And then there's like throw a cow in, shut the door. Is it a park in Berkeley? And we, I mean, I like wrote up a little document that was like, that was about how I had no legal responsibility and made people sign it. And it made me feel better. <laughs> You're like, oh, I got a, I have a waiver. I've got this waiver. It's fine. Okay, so Also, please wave this magic wand around. Yeah, it was like, but I mean, I knew that it, it was mostly friends and things. And it was like, we were, it was a fun way to support a rancher. And it actually grew beyond, you know, it continued actually for a number of years. I passed it off to a local group that managed it. But it, it was the kind of thing where I was like, wow, people really want this because people go crazy for good meat. And there wasn't any and you couldn't buy any from any local stores. And I was like, this is kind of interesting, I'm like sort of filed it away for future reference. You know, keep in mind, I was in 2005, six and seven. I was really messing around with meat on the ground. And I just realized like this is nobody can get this product. And then also talking to the ranchers, the ranchers were like, yeah, we would love to sell direct, but we end up selling our animals, you know, into feedlots to finish because there's no market for them. So that kind of just stayed with me, like that there was definitely an opportunity in that space. So I hope I'm not skipping over like 10 whole years of your life, but can you tell us what Belcampo is and sort of what the ethos is, how it got started, just sort of the Belcampo story? It is crazy that you're like, you know what, there's got to be millions of dollars <laughs> in teaching people to eat whole foods. How, I mean, you've this may be the appropriate uh, euphemism long way around the barn. Yeah. The, the, you know, the journey with Belcampo has been incredible because, you know, it's hard for me to look at it now as having worked, even though I think substantially it is working incredibly well. It's been an enormously like sort of heroic, challenging journey, right. In terms of what we were up against and how it came about. Initially I started the business as a consultant. So I sold my last business. I was uh, looking for new opportunities, didn't want to raise capital to sort of do my own thing just yet. And I um, started a consulting company and for a couple of years. I did some consulting, actually primarily a couple big clients in the meat space. I then got connected to my major client. So Belcampo has definitely been a massive challenge and a massive journey. 
the kernel of it started the business in 2012 with my business partner who I'd met through a consulting gig. I consulted to him to help him figure out what to do with the ranch that he had bought at the base of Mount Shasta. I really started working with him like in 2010 and um, developed the concept for the business, developed the name and the brand. And he's like, great, I'll fund it if you'll run it. And that was really end of 2011. We had formally incorporated in 2012. And the initial plan was to basically sell the, the livestock from this ranch via restaurants. And we opened the first one in Marin, closed that during COVID permanently. But we now have five restaurants around the state, three in SoCal and two in NorCal. And the restaurants actually built the brand. I mean, the restaurants where we're growing now at Belcampo is in our retail. Uh, we're growing massively in retail. A big announcement coming up that this summer about that expansion. And we've blown up on e-commerce. But that was all about taking the brand that had been built to the restaurants and turning it into a way to get more people to be aware of the product. So when I say we built a brand new restaurants, started in 2012, opening the first restaurant. And um, by 2014, I was on like the best burgers in the U.S. list on Time Out, on um, Eater, on a number of big national news and things like that. So we started to really kill it with the culinary reputation, which back in like 2014 and 15, keep in mind grass-fed beef just wasn't, it was considered something you might do because you're really into health or really into the planet, but it's not something you're going to do because it tastes good. You're going to do it because you think it's the right thing to do. So that was the major focus for me. It was like, how do I brand a meat around excellent taste that's mostly known just for its environmental benefits? And the kind of why the taste was different, that story has to do, that's where the hard work came in. And that was... I bought land with my business partner and built a slaughterhouse about 20 minutes away from the farm. And we built, initially we had 13 species raised commercially on the ranch, which is nuts. Now we're down to like four, right? Um, but we were raising swabs and rabbits. I actually had the first USDA certified organic and free range rabbit program, which is otherwise known as like a predator snack bar. <laughs> sounds great on paper. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds great. How their rabbits in cages? Let them free. <laughs> it's like so stupid. Snack bar. It's so bad because rabbits are like the dumbest. I mean, the dumbest. Like chickens at least know to like go under or something. Rabbits are like, hmm, interesting beak. Right? Like they're just like they go. They don't move. They don't run away. They they're just tasty, like, tasty snack bar. So bad. So yeah, rabbits basically, I mean they concept for the brand has been full supply chain to guarantee optimal taste quality. And my background as a real culinarian probably has cost the company a lot because I can be super particular about quality and taste. But I think it's also what's helped ensure that we hold this edge of being really renowned for being the best tasting and the most healthy. Because I have not compromised on the values of regenerative agriculture on the differentiating values. And there have been fights and conversations along the way. We have, you know, spent more money than we could have by doing it a different way. And I, I think that the end is justifying the means in that we're now really renowned for tasting amazing. We're actually third party certified to be carbon impact positive. So we sequester far more carbon than we emit documented in the whole operation. And we're growing really rapidly. We grew throughout COVID. So we're actually in this moment now where it's like the business's hard choices in the early years, I think, are being rewarded because customers are starting to care more about the values that are behind their meats. We interviewed Diane Rogers about regenerative agriculture. And one of the things that she brought up, which I think was really interesting, was this idea that, you know, we have scapegoated meat around carbon, one, something that you, I think, have just addressed, right? And two, meat is a really important nutritionally dense food for populations of lower economic status, emergent cultures, or women can't own land. There are a whole bunch of things that she kind of brought up. And what I'd love to hear you on, and without getting political, I have heard recently that there was a even a talk in the current administration about trying to reduce our meat consumption is that the right direction to be going? Because we have this relationship with you and we've become, we've known Belcampo as just eaters in Marin. This is where we, I think we fell in love with Lardo first. You're making this whipped pork butter that we were putting oh, on man. toast. That was the, the days of Lardo. Let's bring oh, Lardo oh God, changed Lardo our is lives. like the greatest thing ever. Whipped pork butter, everyone. Oh. And uh, it's, it's like butter, but 
as nature intended. Matter, but that's how we kind of stumbled into is just consumers. Literally, did we know we were like we ate lardo, and then we were like, okay, we're gonna have to meet this woman, become her friend. I mean, that's literally like step one, lardo. Step three, Anya's in our life forever. But you know, how do we? wrap our heads around this message that somehow there is a better way and is removing meat the right thing to do? That's a lot of questions. And I think the broader answer is meat does not have to be bad for the environment. We're demonizing meat as a category without looking at the broad range of ways in which meat is produced. And I would say, first off, I'm a regenerative rancher we're farming climate positive. I can talk about my segment of the industry. I also need to call out that the data around the actual feedlot and like the conventional mainstream is also flawed, right? So I think they're getting bashed in a way that is not entirely accurate, but that's not really my fight to fight. Um, and I'm not here to differentiate myself from them in any specific way. But I'd say like a lot of sort of messy data out there in general in our world of Belcampo and other regenerative ranches, we're shown to be carbon impact positive. We are sequestering more carbon than we produce, and we're doing it through regenerative grazing, which means grazing and land management where practices that integrate animals and perennial pastures are used to increase soil carbon. Then the good thing for us as humans is that when there's richer soil carbon, there's greater micronutrient density in the soil. When there's greater micronutrient density in the soil, the plants themselves have higher nutritional content. So when you look at why do broccoli that you buy at the farmer's market have higher antioxidants, you know, the data out there about how different plants can be a tomatoes on a tomato, et cetera, that's because soil nutrient density is the important factor in nutrient density in the foods that are produced. It's less of a neat line in animal agriculture, but there still exists that connection. So you have to look at agriculture as being a huge range of ways that you can do things. It's like talking about movement and saying, you can get from here to 10 blocks a day away walking, you can get there in a helicopter and you could get there in a rocket. So what's the carbon footprint of getting from here to 10 blocks away? Well, it's X. It's like, no, but I walked. Doesn't matter. It's X. Okay. But I I took the rocket. Doesn't matter. It's X. So that's what we're doing. We're simplifying down to sort of one single scenario that also is not even based on good math. And we're using that as a generalization for an entire industry. So I'd say, first off, the wrong that meat's bad for the environment, that it has to be bad for the environment. Second off, meat is an incredible nutrient powerhouse for humans, it's an essential part of our diet. And I'm deeply, deeply concerned about this concept that eating hyper-processed soy and grain-based foods as a replacement to meat is a good choice or is like, actually, it's actually betrayed as a better choice than eating meat. It's more expensive too, isn't it? It's more expensive. It causes higher calorie consumption. There's emulsifiers and all the things that are immune suppressant. It's estrogenase. It's like it's all the bad things. So it to me is insane that we're advocating that people consider eating highly processed grain and legume based products instead of eating meat. That doesn't make any sense at all. So there's that second layer where I say, I don't think that's a good choice nutritionally. And then also, you know, the, the plant-based solutions that are being discussed are, are all about monocropping and massively scaled agriculture which has been shown to be far more detrimental to the environment and probably anything else that we're doing, right? So there's just so many layers that I find to be illogical. And I think when I see a lot of things that really don't add up, I think, okay, there's an interest that in line here that's not being expressed. There's an interest that's driving this that's not being expressed because these data points, like all together, it's like this really doesn't make sense. So I'm not sure what that interest is. Like part of me thinks, well, it's just people reacting to all this horrible news about how bad confinement agriculture is. And it is horrible. And I would rather be vegan than eat confinement agricultural product. And actually, when I'm in a situation where I'm staying somewhere or on the road and can't get meat that I know is regenerative and farmed the right way, I don't eat meat. I mean, I just won't. So I understand that. But I feel like there's something else where, which has to do with just this broader drift away from processed foods that's happening in 
in the media that people are understanding and it's becoming more mainstream that processed foods are bad for us. And I think industry is grasping at ways to keep us eating processed food. Kind of one theory I have, there may be some sort of bigger factors afoot, but I encourage us to kind of question this and say, wow, we're this like verified, amazing, important, good for the environment food stuff is being maligned. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, I just read, I mean, I think it was in the last two weeks or something that Epicurious decided to no longer publish any recipes or any new recipes that have red meat. And I had the same thought. I thought, you know, wait a second, all red meat is not created equal. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I felt like it was, it's a very short-sighted, it's questionable from a nutritional standpoint. I think there's so much good, high quality meat out there that's climate positive and that, I don't know. I was disappointed that that was the direction. I mean, I don't even follow Epicurious, but I read about it in the New York Times. So I don't know. Did you read about that? What was your reaction? We have enough recipes. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Well, Get a different... Home. I'm doing recipes all the time. No, I mean, I, I felt sad. Like any time I see people being short-sighted and reactive, I worry about our society and I worry about our culture and our, our species. You know, there's it's a real challenge to think about like how how are we going to move forward if we're being this irrational in the near term with things that are so important like diet and health and wellness? So I remember um, one little story for you is that I can't remember when at some point in my adult life, I remember reading and sort of taking to heart this idea that like, if you're going to eat something that has more than like three ingredients, it's probably not food. And then I used to play this game with my kids at the grocery store because, you know, with little kids, the grocery store is like the worst place ever because it's, can I get this? Can I get that? Can I get this? And my kids were for some reason really obsessed with those bright orange crackers with peanut butter in the middle. Remember those? Yeah. And I made this rule with them that if they could correctly read and pronounce all the ingredients on the nutrition label, that I would let them get it. And of course, suckers. that was never possible because, I mean, first of all, it's in like one point font. And second of all, there's like 85 ingredients in that. But, you know, when the Impossible Burger came out, we bought a package, which I think was expensive. And that actually was the thing that deterred me immediately. I looked at the ingredients and I want to say there were like 85 ingredients in it. Many of the ingredients I didn't recognize at all and couldn't pronounce. And that sort of just immediately like failed my test. There's a lot of things to be concerned about with that. And I would, I, I can go through the list of the stuff that's in it that's terrifying. But I think just taking a step back, the fact that there's so many ingredients should be terrifying. Let me, I want, I want yeah, to pivot. I'm, I'm glad that you think that oh. that's a good rule because I've been following it in my adult life. So <laughs> you are this incredible CEO who happens to also be a woman in a field that is kind of crazy. You've shepherded us through the pandemic and all your people. And by crazy, do you mean most ranchers are probably men? I just think that food as a business done the right way is, is a tricky, hard, worthy task for our smartest, hardest working people. That's what I think. What has surprised you about Belcampo through this last 18 months because you really had a chance to stress test the truth of the model. It's been so powerful for me to see people orient around things that represent their values. So COVID brought stuff to the forefront for people. I really don't like this person. I really like this. This thing is scary to me. Like a lot of people dealt with stuff straight up, right? That's what I saw happening around me. But I also found that there was a sense of urgency around kind of agency and making good choices for people. So the support that Belcampo got from our constituency, it's like, I felt like people came through for us because we came through for them. And it was this moment where things that I've been thinking and saying for a long time about, you know, our own supply chain and wholly owned and transparency and this stuff, it was like, oh yeah, this is real. She's really there. And they have really have this farm that they talked about and they're driving trucks down to LA and they have all the meat. Like it was incredible to be able to deliver during that crisis. So that was amazing for me in terms of the business. And it was incredible, just like this opportunity to be super nimble and super fast and jump and pivot and take advantage of opportunities was just huge. So it was like one of the most exciting times in my career, even though it was all from my couch, it was like driving in and diving. And I just remember the first like month just sitting on my couch, like drinking coffee and ketones and like tippy tappy, tippy tappy, you know, trying to like see if everything was going to fall apart and trying to hold it together. 
And then feeling like this sense of like, oh, wow, this is actually going to be the breaks in the bigger supply chain are where I can shine. Now the question is like, now that that's sort of through us, like, well, behind us, are people still going to care and notice that it matters that you have a local regional supply chain like Bocampo for me in California on the West Coast? And so that's not the big question. The challenge is like, can I market this in a way where people give a damn about this when it's no longer like, oh my gosh, I might not have meat if these people weren't here, right? But the opportunity to show up for my community in a time of need was like the highest calling. It was so exciting. And it was also just really cool how how much focus I was able to sort of slough off things and, and really like we honed down our product line. You know, we went deep into certain things. We got greater scale on certain things and started to do them better. So that's been, it's just like so, every month in COVID felt like three years, four years of growth in the business in terms of evolution and development. Well, I definitely can say there was a lot of evolution in every month, but maybe de-evolution for, <laughs> for our family at home. I just want to pause because there's something that I, I, I want to talk about that I is lost sometimes in this conversation about how people relate. And, you know, we've been friends, we've eaten at your house, and there was something that happened to us there that really resonated with Juliet and I, and that was you had a, a wood fire and you cooked us an entire meal on a wood fire. And which really resonated with Juliet and I, because we're secretly dirtbag river guides who've been doing this for a long time. But we never occurred to us that we could actually not just have a green egg and barbecue, but actually cook around a fire. And we actually went home, replicated your fireplace and grill system, and it has changed our life. And part of it is that it gives us a reason to sit down and slow down and have kind of the slow food piece where, you know, we get to make a fire. It takes a second, takes planning. We're able to cook outside. We're doing all this radical cooking. We're cooking everything, you know, soup to nuts outside on the fire. I mean, Juliet's toasting the nuts for the salad. I'm, you know, we're, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. One of the things that we know in that all our high-performance environments, people that are really successful eat together. And I just need to give you some, a shout out because I have been in a lot of high, high, you know, stakes environments where the leadership team eats together. And I feel like my leadership team, my family is eating together differently than even we did. Cause we are really big fans of sit down and Juliet is a really incredible chef, but this fire piece really come from you has changed our lives. So thank you. Yeah. I noticed just when I started cooking on wood fire, it was a time like I've always learned, learned how, and you know, in my early twenties when I lived in Sicily and like you make a little fire out of twigs and cook stuff. It was like, I learned how to do it there and kind of was like, cool, neat little skill. And it wasn't until like the, I started the company, I was up at the ranch a lot. Cause in the early years, it was like a lot of heavy lifting of team building and stuff up there and a lot of turnover. It was just, it was challenging in the beginning and hiring and building the slaughterhouse and stuff. So I was up there a lot and I started cooking over the open fire and shooting a bow just like, cause I was up there and I'm like, what am I do? I got a lot of meat and I got a lot of wood. And then it was something that so clearly downshifted me. And then I had my daughter, my first child, and I remember holding her and cooking over the fire. Everyone always gave me heck about like, your child's going to burn. I'm like, Every kids can be near fire. Trust me. Humans evolved with like- Yeah, humans have never cooked with a baby near a fire. Ever. So I was like, and I would notice my daughter would just like zero in on that fire. And just like, it was better than anything. She would just be really calm and chill and stare at it. And she loved watching it. And- I've since like read into the research and, you know, campfires help you downshift. They increase your oxytocin or whatever your make you happy and chill. And um, it was so great to see that. So I just started to realize like, oh, that little fire experience start to finish can be this nice way for me to downshift. Now my life is much more tranquil than it's ever been in recent memory. I become chair of the board and no longer have operational accountability for the business and mostly doing marketing and brand and that kind of thing. And but still then it's like the ritual of like lighting it, sitting by it, all that stuff. It's like, it's become, it's like a routine. It's like a routine that brings me peace. And then the food is so bomb. It's so It's so bomb. fun. Like it's a skill that you learn of like, oh, I'm going to work the fire. I'm going to do my veggies on the side. I'm going to do my meats going. I've got, you know, and then making it all come together at the right time. It's just like, it's a really beautiful, really involved kind of thought process that I love to, I love thinking through the details and the sequence and making a list and doing a prep and thinking of, and I also love how food over the wood fire, like you can 
make sauces and combos that are like really edgy. You can use more acid because it's like it really holds up to things. So like the combination of like grass fed and finished meat, free range meat, really bold, delicious sauces, wood. It's like such a great combination. Ah, we're just so grateful for you for that. <laughs> really, like we can't tell you enough. You know, a question I have for you, and in full disclosure, I have never been to the ranch, and I only see the ranch on Instagram, but it seems like a magical place up there. And I know you've done a lot of hard work there, but I, I, I don't know. I guess I just wanted you to describe it. I know that you bring women up and teach women how to like fully butcher an animal, and it just seems like a rad place. And I just wanted you to describe it. Well, first you should come up and visit when I'm there. I'm there a bunch of summer. But I, the ranch is actually three ranches, each of which are about 7,000 acres. That's the core ranch. And then we have some other land that we lease further away. But the core of that, that 21,000 acres, it's three parcels. And the center parcel is where I built the kind of hospitality center. So I run meat camps there. And we've got our first post-COVID meat camps in September. Woo. This year, meat camp, meat camp, three days on the forge, lots of cooking. And um, the camps are like full immersion. I just teach people kind of like a way of life, cooking over the wood fire, how to touch and smell and taste your food, how to look for quality, those things. The scene is up in the middle of, you know, a cattle ranch with 3000 head of animals and it smells like heaven. It's so beautiful, so relaxing. And that's kind of, you know, my dream for it is just like, well, if people think animal egg is so bad, they can't if they come up here and see how lush the pastures are and see how beautiful it is and smell the air and hear the birds and see the frogs and all those things. So it's basically a just like being in the heart of a massive regenerative ranch is pretty incredible. And people's minds are totally opened by it. I've had vegans come to meat camp, actually. Like it's really about being in a beautiful outdoor space. And, and we have a huge organic vegetable garden and an organic orchard with lots of stone fruit and grapes and everything like that. So it's kind of paradise. It's really just the best place. Um, my son is continually asking me, when do you get to go back to the farm? When do you get to go back to the farm? It's like- Yeah, moving people closer to food, I feel like even, you know, you're just a busy person, but if you can have a CSA or, or have a ranch or have a f local farm, that connection just connects you to people who grow your food and to the food. It's a different relationship. It really changes sort of the sterile transactional nature of, you know, going, it doesn't matter how great the grocery store is. It's hard to see the people and the history and the choices behind that. And I feel like, you know, as we try to untangle what it means to be a classically modern human and all the decisions, it really is a simpler way of just knowing a farmer. I mean, knowing a farmer, being on a farm one time, having that in your head, I think you're less wasteful. I don't think you throw away meat. I think you make just a whole lot of different decisions about where your dollars go and how you cook and, and how you think about the whole process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like everything I've learned in my life about food is that simple is better, right? So, and the, the more basic the connection, you know, I even think that about certifications. I love that we're organic certified and we're getting regenerative certified and all those things. It's fabulous. But like, if you actually know your farmer and visit the ranch and trust their processes, don't worry about certifications. Direct connection is actually the very best <laughs> thing. true. Right, right. You could just ask questions. Is like always the best, right? No, I know this hippie girl in Berkeley who has a cow in her van. Yeah, Trust exactly. Just, with a waiver. It's a cow waiver. But I love myself. Uh, but yeah, it's like th that kind of a simple direct connection. But I also think it's, you know, we ask like more questions about the upgrade on the operating system on our phone than we ask about where our meat comes from. Mm. Right. And we ask, you know, more questions about like the most random things. Right. We ask, like we just we're not caring about the right things in terms of our actual absolute health and safety. Right. We, we're far more concerned about kind of trivial, superficial issues right now than we are about meaningful things that could impact our health and wellness. How do your kids, I mean, your kids don't know another way. And I, you know. Including a Gatorade way. <laughs> that's true. They, Gatorade is a, is a foreign object idea. It's a conceptual idea for your, one of your children. But um, do you notice that it's, is it hard to swim upstream? Because, you know, I think people might listen to this and be like, oh, I'm so in, but man, I have to fight my kids to eat these foods that aren't processed. And it's not inter food entertainment where we're tricking people in these. Because I even saw recently a study that we're eating less sugar than we've ever done, but we're eating way more calorically dense processed foods, which is the culprit. I find my kids have sort of a perverse pride in us being a little different and they're into it. 
you know, I, yesterday we went on a little Mother's Day excursion with a friend and her kids and she had gummy bears and I had carrots, like just like literally like a whole dirty carrot in my bag. Cause I try to also just get my kids, like, it's not always going to be a bag. It's not always going to be processed. It's not going to be perfect. Like you just eat good food and don't worry about it. But my kids ate their carrots and then they had some gummy bears. So I try not to make anything off limits, you know, like it's like you can have whatever, but they also love that everything tastes really good. They brag about my cooking all the time and they love my food and they, they are, my son will come in the kitchen like, oh my God, mom, it smells so good. Like, it's like, they really eat with a lot of gusto. If you want your kids to eat well, remember that hunger is the best seasoning. Ooh. You and I were talking about, we were texting back and forth because you had put up a hamburger patty, which was just Belcampo hamburger and like chunky salt. And that is the greatest burger ever. And I was just kind of- It was uh, like real thin. Uh, it was you real just, thin. It was good. It's unbelievable. And you you were laughing that your kids were like, where's the extra burgers? And you're like, that was for a photo shoot, hon. Huh? And they're like, what? No. We you have know. a bowl of fruit they can snack on, but don't, this idea that you need to have a shelf in your pantry with a bunch of- processed foods that your kids enjoy. Not true. That's why your kids aren't eating their healthy food. Just remember, and the same thing goes with water. Like people are always worried carrying around all these drinks and hydration and stuff. It's like, we're fine without having water all the time. We're fine. You're, if you're really at risk of dehydration or have some other major health issue, okay, I understand. But like, and most of us can be like, great, we'll be a little bit thirsty and then we'll drink a little bit when we get home. You know, it's like this idea that every need must be met. You're hungry oh my God, we got to get a snack. No, you don't. You're hungry. Awesome. Food's going to taste great when we get home in an hour. You know, like that's a, just coaching this, like with this whole idea. I mean, intermittent fasting is kind of like how we used to live and eat a while ago, which is that you didn't always have food exactly when you wanted it. Right. And I think that that kind of bringing back some of that sense of like it being okay to be hungry is teaching that as part of your life skills is, is a great thing you can do for your children. You mentioned this briefly in passing, but I know that you just recently stepped down as CEO of Belcampo and now our board chair. So you, you don't have the same operational role, although I know you're still very involved in the company, but tell us a little bit about that. So I'm, or yeah, I mean, basically I've the operational CEO for 10 years. Um, so it was a I'm married time. to an operational CEO. That's <laughs> badass. It was a long time. Um, but it's, the issue is the, the company's needs too. You know, now we're scaling logistical capacity on e-commerce, which means setting up fulfillment centers and building out more complex kind of like customer service loopbacks and things like these are not the areas that are my passion. So I can get interested in anything if it supports the broader goals of my life, but that's really not my best and highest usage. So it's a natural fit for me to, I hired somebody incredible who was president of Method, the soap company and built it like eightfold and crushes it and loves logistics and loves distribution and is really good at team building. And it's been a really good fit. So being free of some of the operational complexity is allowing me to kind of lift off and do more of the thinking and the thought leadership and the space that I want to build for myself as a culinary voice as well. And frankly, hang on, I was going to say, food porn, we will link to you, but your Instagram is so inspiring. Like it's really so great. Like it's, a, you can do many things like so many of the powerful women I know, comma, you are a master of cooking beautiful foods and taking pictures of them also. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's like kind of what brought me back to my heart of the brand, you know, for years it was a real struggle and I started working on social. I mean, I was the operational CEO of a meat company. I wasn't like developing recipes for our restaurants. You know, I oversaw menu items and things like that, but a couple of years ago, I was like, you know, what? this Instagram kind of is interesting to me. I'm going to put my mind to it. And I started doing it on the weekends for the company and for myself on just like taking a day and just cooking the heck out of everything and doing it how I wanted to on the wood fire. And we started to really pick up and I was like, okay, this is actually a good use of my time. So it's been, I kind of built my future, you know, with that, because I started doing the piece of things that I loved with a lot of passion and then fortunately, you know, that with e-commerce, we've been able to leverage that aspect of the brand, you know, much, much more strategically. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were going to follow up about what are you doing now? What are you working on? Is that? Well, I mean, I guess it was a little bit more of a specific question, which is, I know that you have been a judge on Iron Chef and oh. spent some time on Food Network. Will we be seeing the Anya Fernald show on some sort of food please, food please, situation please, because please, you know we're, please, we're, please, we're please. do you have two subscribers already? <laughs> I, I hope. I mean, I am. 
right now I'm really still focused on building on the business, you know, I'm getting e-com up and running, but I've talked to, as I feel like the world's evolving or the culinary landscape's evolving in a way where my voice might fit in better. Right. Cause for a while I was doing things that were just way too out there, but now I feel like it's become more mainstream to be into what I'm into. Girl, you have become so basic in your craziness. It's pretty it's amazing. You're like, first, I'm going to do this revolutionary thing. I'm going to make a fire and then I'm going to cook. <laughs> revolutionary thing. I'm going to cook meat over a fire. Over a fire. Yeah. I'm, I, I hope I'm interested right now to see. I'm trying to straddle, like, you know, the business side is still really meaningful. I'm driving a capital rise right now for the company. That's my first time to raise external capital. So it's a big deal for me. And then I'm hoping, you know, six months from now, I'd be able to spend a lot more time on being a voice for regenerative agriculture and teaching people to eat stuff and smell it first and savor it and cook slowly and love on their families with their food. You know, that's kind of the message I want to, I want to bring. So I'm hoping. I have to tell everyone, here's, here's my mia culpa. I don't like pork. And uh, I know like, Lisa's, Lisa's she, in like, the background. Like, uh, she's so disappointed. She's, she's so disappointed. Puerto Rican heritage. And she's just like, I don't even know you. I like shrimp, but the idea is... Um, you can't like counter on. it with liking shrimp. I know, I know, that but that's help. because it's part of the, the, the heritage. Anyway, this is this goes way back. I love Belcampo pork. I love the pork I had in Germany as a kid. Like people were like, like in this paleo movement, it's like bacon, bacon, everything, bacon, bacon, bacon. And I was like, eh, you can take it or leave it. I don't really love bacon, but I love your bacon. I don't know if I can say that in a non-creepy <laughs> I love your bacon. <laughs> All the women here are like writing the time down for HR <laughs> yeah, yeah. all the time. Um, you know, I just really have to say that it is interesting that, you know, I had this aversion to a, a meat that I just didn't love. And then when I fell in love with Belcampo, I suddenly was like, oh, pork is, you know, it's back on the menu. And it really is a relationship to those animals. I also think this, I can be kind of woo on this, you know, pork are the most similar to humans in terms of DNA. And there's definitely kind of like an, they're the most intelligent. They're smarter than dogs. They can totally sense fear when they're in the, I mean, like there's actual like a, an energetic load in confinement pork that I think people can be sensitive to sort of a comment. You know, I also think pork is incredibly, incredibly texturally impacted through slow growth. So everything's impacted by speed of growth. Musculature that's put on more slowly tends to be finer, more compact, more tender, but in pork, I noticed the greatest difference uh, between the slow-growing pork that's free-range and the confinement pork, just that it's not ropey. It's, it's mild and sweet and tender. So it could be woo or it could be science, but like somewhere in the middle, the other stuff's gross and our stuff is magic. I think it's magic. <laughs> but you, it really brings back to the idea that you know I'm not choosing to eat Belcampo necessarily because it's better for the environment or more sustainable. It's better. It tastes so good. And I think that's really, we always lose track of that a little bit of like, you know, when Juliet and I are like, Hey, you know, you should engage in these behaviors because your body will feel better. Not because you may have knee rabies someday. You know, I think the immediate trade-off sometimes that gets lost in this conversation is just how tasty your food is. So thank you. Awesome. We'll come back soon and have some tea. Okay. So one request. When I come to meet camp, can we make like herbed lardo together? That's my um, personal request. I'm going to bring like a giant tub of lardo back to my house. Well, we can, I can just get you some back fat and we can, uh, we can teach you how to make lardo at home. It's actually, it's an easy charcuterie product to make at home. Yes. Dude, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm stalking your Instagram right now for lardo. Okay. So oh. where can people follow you and all of the amazing cooking and other things you're doing? So Belcampo Miko is our handle, and I am at Anya Fernald. Meat camps, you can come visit the farm. You can also just go on Hip Camp to stay there. But most importantly, go to belcampo.com and get some meat. We just launched subscriptions, um, and so we'll be really um, able to, I think for many of your customers that are eating for wellness and health and have kind of like consistent needs monthly, it's a great way to get some value because we do offer a discount and you can get meat shipped to you and whatever cadence you'd like, weekly, bi-weekly, et cetera. So website's now got about 60 products on it. We have all the holiday specials and things like that. And it's just an awesome library of amazing, organic, free-range, pastured, regeneratively farmed meat. So let me get this straight. Step one, grew up on a raw dairy farm. Step two, live in a grotto. 
Step three, save the planet, <laughs> feed people. Just It's a straight line. I totally understand it now. The grotto is a key thing. You, I focused on that too. We can now just like loop together our worlds, guys. And then we with like a protocol, which is like ice bath, sauna, fire pit. Oh, you know, the fire pit has always been missing from the ice bath. I, that's that, that. I mean, it's like, I actually would recommend it be like ice bath, sauna, light the fire, do the grounding, laying on the regenerative earth, and then come back and eat the meat. Just saying. You're going to well, be. That sounds like gonna, the greatest weekend I could ever have. <laughs> and and also, I'm just brainstorming on the wellness front with you. You're going to be 2,000 years old. You're never going to die. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the problem. Um, there are a million stories and pieces. You know, we love this podcast because our crazy life, you know, through fitness and health, has brought us in contact with so many inspiring, and gorgeous, brained people. Thank you so much for being our friends and for for talking about your journey because it is amazing. It's bananas, as Lisa would say. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Anya. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.